You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that butters his bread on both sides. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the captain. Yeah, give me some of that tasty apple butter. It's good to be seen. Good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today, we are drinking seven years by the Brayton Brewing Company. This New England-style pale ale packs a lot of hop flavor without the bitterness, and that's because of the tropical fruit that they added. Berries and tangerine balance this baby out for a delicious finish. Garage grade four out of five bottle caps. And our fridge is full thanks to our friends right here. First up, a big cheers to Jordan Bonaparte from the Nighttime Podcast for sending us some delicious Canadian beers. And a big shout out to Lauren in Hudson, New Hampshire. Next up, here's a cheers to Lindsay in Fargo, North Dakota. Old Fargo. And a big we like to chip to Alberto B and Parts Unknown. And also in Parts Unknown, we have Vanessa B as well. Everyone we just mentioned, well, they went to our website, truecrimegarage.com. They clicked on the donate button and they helped us fill up the fridge for today's show. And for that, we thank you. Yeah, B-W-E-R-R-U-N, Beer Run. If you're not a member of our mailing list, you need to do so today. Go to truecrimegarage.com and sign up on our mailing list. I'll be sending out a promo code to the store tonight. So look for that in your inbox. And if you have signed up and you don't receive that email, look in your spam box. Or maybe you signed up with the wrong email address. So... Make sure you put the right email address in there. Colonel, that's enough of the BS news. That's right. True Crime Garage creating all the spam. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
Hello, Jamie. Thank you for joining me here in the garage today. I'm excited to talk about your new book, Madman in the Woods. It's quite the interesting story. It's quite the interesting life that you had. Really kind of scary when you think about how close you were to, well, the madman in the woods. Life next door to the Unabomber. Jamie is here to talk about her childhood and growing up next to Ted Kaczynski. As casuals, this is Jamie. And as short and simple to put it, you grew up next to a serial killer. Yes, I sure did. I grew up um, just less than a quarter of a mile away from Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. And um, sometimes when I say a quarter mile, people are like, oh, that that seems actually kind of far, but it's rural Montana. And so you have to really think about the landscape there. And, um, you know, and, and just to give you a, a small amount of background, my family purchased about 9,000 acres um, of ranch land decades before Ted Kaczynski came to Lincoln. And in 1971, my grandfather sold 1.4 acre to Ted and David Kaczynski. And that 1.4 acre was on the fringe of our ranch land. And so since 1971 to 1996, when Ted was arrested, our family and Ted Kaczynski basically were sharing a backyard and me specifically for um, you know most of my childhood you're quite a bit younger than ted so um you're only living next door to him for what about 15 years is that right uh, yeah you're you're very close i was born in 1980 and so he was arrested in 96 i was 16 years old when he was arrested and describe this area for us the uh the the land that your family owned and of course, the 1.4 acres that Ted and his brother own. So the area that I am from, um, Lincoln, Montana, is very rural. Like it's a, it's about a thousand residents, give or take, depending on the season. The town is very small. It has um, a blinking stoplight, not even red and green. It's so you can imagine, um, you know, that it's very, very, very tidy. Where Ted specifically lived was close to four miles from the tiny town of Lincoln. Very mm. isolated, rural area, surrounded by pine trees. And when he bought that land in 1971, there were very few people living out there. And so obviously that really did appeal to him. As the years went on, there were a couple more neighbors here and there, but um, really there there weren't it wasn't very populated. So my my family, my dad, of course, um, you know, as as seemingly fellow mountain men do, was always looking out for Ted and trying to help Ted because that's kind of how the community worked. And you know, because of that, they did form it almost, uh, you know, it, it seemed on the surface a friendship in those very early years. So, you know, the, the place is very rural, but the community is very tight knit. And so my, you know, my father really tried to 
care for Ted in um, in the way that he would care for any other neighbor. Yeah, Ted was a very interesting guy, a very odd character to to really. Well, you know, when we covered the Unabomber case a while back, a year or so ago, and I really dove into who he was and tried to get an opinion on his personality and his makeup even you know thousands of a thousand miles away and all these years later and really just what i could pull off of pages and not so much the experience you had where you met him face to face on multiple occasions and lived next door to him essentially but the vibe i always kind of got jamie was that here we have this guy that yes he he moves out, you say rural, but you know, like I live in a rural area of Ohio to call your area rural and mine rural in the same sentence would be insanity because, uh, to me, like you guys are living out in the middle of nowhere pretty much. And for this guy to move out into the middle of nowhere, it it gives you this vibe. Like here's this dude that wants to just run away from everybody else that he hates society. Hate, he hates all that in society entails and he wants to be by himself. He wants to be left alone. But at the same time, I glad, I'm glad that you bring up what you did with your father and, and the way that the mountain men would work and they would check in on one another. And I imagine your father's going over there every couple of days or, or just dropping by when he happens to be in that corner of your guys's plot of land and saying, hey, Ted, how's it going? You, you know, any problems? You know, you just kind of check in with each other as neighbors would in any area. But but it's more important here in this area because you're talking about a situation where somebody could, God forbid, they have a, a health situation and pass away. They could not be noticed for, for days or weeks if nobody's there to check on them, if not longer. With Ted, I always kind of got this vibe that even though he's once and seems on the surface like he desires this hermit style of life, I do think just like every other human being, though, he was someone that needed some kind of interaction with others and and, and actually desired it, even if he would tell us otherwise. I think he actually desired human interaction and really probably was starved for some type of meaningful friendship that he just didn't have and and that maybe he didn't allow himself to have. And you met him face to face and your father knew him. Am I close to being right here? Yeah, actually, I think you're pretty spot on, especially in the what I call the early years for me. So the late 70s, early 80s, that is when Ted Kaczynski was still coming over to our family's home for dinner he he held me as a baby and 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 asked to hold me um you know there were still late night card games between him and my parents and in, in my book and madman in the woods i do really try to uncover that like was that was it a cover for ted was it, was he trying to create this persona of being this you know normal neighbor or did he really still at that point have a desire for connection mm-hmm. and and i don't know if we'll we'll ever really get to the bottom of that answer but I, I, there, there's still a part of me that really does believe that he he still he still needed that and even as the time went on 
when you know he was deep into his reign of domestic terror, you can read his journals and sort of see that as well because he's writing every single day. And, and when I say journals, they're basically stacks of notebooks that were found in his cabin. But he is detailing everything about his day, you know, what he's eating, what he's hunting, what he's reading, um, and of course, his crimes as well. But when he writes, it's as though he's writing to an audience. Mm-hmm. And that also has o- always made me think that it was his own way of some sort of almost communication with the outside world. The only the only safe way he could do it. Was almost to mimic like he's writing somebody a letter rather than keeping a personal journal. Exactly. Exactly. It was some sort of, in his mind, connection um, and communication with others, even though it really wasn't. And that's interesting, too, that he was doing that. And I was aware of the these diaries. I kind of pictured him as being something a little bit different, but, um, but didn't do a whole lot of research into those particular diaries. So that's interesting to hear. And that to me, in some ways reflects the typical behavior of a solitary man. You know, uh, we, we will see that similar behavior from inmates where they're locked up for long periods of day. So of the day, so they will write down and journal things that you and I would not, you know, what, what I had for lunch, uh, what time lunch was, what books I was reading and so on and so forth. It's all these little minute insignificant details of their day, but it's a way to pass the time and to record the time in a way. And, but he's doing it in a way that, that it would be almost that he's presenting it to an audience or that he ha- he's he's communicating with someone. And I think that goes back to what I was thinking and what you're hitting on there that I do think in a way as as alone as he seemed to want to be on the surface, again, I, I do think he was starved for real relationships. I don't know that he had the ability to to have them or to have any type of lasting meaningful relationship. It's almost like uh, uh, his personality was his own prison. While writing the book, I did, I connected with David Kaczynski, his brother, of course. And I mean, that was, that was one perspective that I found obvious for obvious reasons, very interesting. And he, you know, kind of said the same thing, especially with the, with the isolation that Ted chose, he was really just stuck in the echo chamber of his own mind. And, um, you know, who knows if that continued isolation um, fueled him even further with with his campaign. Did you meet his brother David before the rest of the world knew what Ted was up to? No, I didn't. So Ted and um, his, excuse me, David and his parents had come out to Lincoln in the early 80s for a, a few visits. Um, but we actually did not did not meet them and did not see them. But um, you know, Ted definitely destroyed that relationship. And the last time the Kaczynskis came out was the mid '80s. And after that, you know, Ted decided that he didn't want anything to do with his family. So we did not we did not know them. And there were very strange encounters as a child with with Ted. And 
many times he would come to our home and knock on the door and ask what time it was, what day it was. And so I would tell him and his reason for many of those um, encounters would be because he needed to go pick up his brother from town. And it was... (laughs) It was really interesting because when I was writing the book and talking with David, I had told him about that. And he was like, oh, that that's definitely very strange because the last time I came to visit, you know, was the mid 80s. And this was definitely happening past that into the 90s. And so that always made me really wonder, too. And something that I wrote about as well is if he's still in in part of his mind had the desire to see his brother because it was such a strange thing to say. Or again, if it was just a cover because he needed to know what time it was truly because he was potentially catching the bus um, to go plant a bomb. So yeah, very, very strange things from my childhood once we you know, as an adult can really look back and uncover what was truly going on. Yeah, that's interesting. It's it's either A, a cover, or like you said, he still had the desire to to be close to his brother, who we know he was close with at one point in his life. And we know that David helped him build the shack or whatever we want to call it that Ted <laughs> yeah. was living in. That's interesting about kind of having a cover for catching the bus to to plant these bombs. But we do know that Ted was riding his bike into town on occasion to for the post office. You know, like where where I live and where most people live, there's a, there's a a wonderful lady or man that drives around in a little truck and hands out the the mail and puts it in the mailboxes and such. But in these smaller communities, we you have to go to the post office not just to send something out, but to retrieve your own mail. And so Ted would go to he would ride into town on his bicycle to pick up mail, drop off mail. And uh, I believe he was visiting a, a small, a very small library that was in town. Yeah. So Ted would go in and out of the town of Lincoln. Um, and he actually did have a mailbox on on the road outside of his home oh, with, okay. his, with his name on it. But he also, you're right, he did also have a P.O. box And in reading some of the letters, the correspondence between him and his parent, his mom specifically, um, there were some times where Wanda Kaczynski, his mother, had sent dried fruit or, you know, some sort of provisions in a package to him and the box was too large to fit into his mailbox. And so they held it at at the post office. And Ted would have to go down there, ride his bike or walk down. And it enraged him. I mean, reading reading the scathing words was really actually pretty difficult um, to see what he would write to his own mother. But I mean, looking back now, you can see, I mean, obviously it's the Unabomber. So there's, you know, there's a little mix of whatever's going on there with some potential mental illness and um, the isolation. So it's easy to see where the words are coming from. But anyway, he would have to walk or ride his bike into town and go to the post office. But he would also 
take time to go into the Lincoln Library. He would sometimes go into um, the grocery store or Garland's Town and Country, as it was called back then, which was like a general store. Um, and at, at those locations, he did have people that he would sit and talk to. He had found, you know, just a few people in town that he was comfortable conversing with. But it was very, very few. As much as he refused to believe that he was crazy and you're calling him the madman, and I actually believe that he was very deep in psychosis by the time that he was apprehended, it's difficult to, I think it probably started rather young, maybe in his teens or early 20s. And I think it it becomes a slippery slope that you just keep falling down a little bit more. And I know, understand that every case is different, but I'm looking at Ted specifically. And I just wonder with the, uh, you know, oh, I have to re- pick up my brother. If it was more of, could have been his his mental in- illness kicking in of, you know, retrieving mail or or hoping to retrieve something from his brother in town. Talk about some of his, you know, you said he would come over and play cards. I would imagine it's difficult playing cards against someone with a genius level IQ. <laughs> um, talk about some of your interactions with him at the house. What do you remember in your young childhood sharing a meal with the Unabomber? Uh, I would imagine as a, as a young girl, you're probably sitting there watching dad and Ted talk about, you know, all sorts of things. So when Ted Kaczynski was coming to our home for meals still, I was a baby. So I don't remember those um, visits. But in writing the book, I got to sit down with my mom and, um, you know, she was able to really detail what that looked like and what that felt like, which was (laughs) very compelling because, you know, in those early years, as you were saying, you know, through the years, he was probably deep into his psychosis when he was coming by and asking the time and such. But when he first came to Lincoln, he made it very clear in, in these journals that his motivation for choosing this lifestyle was revenge, even in 1971. So that was still very present, but he still had the appearance of the Berkeley professor a bit. He mm-hmm. didn't, you know, he didn't quite look like the man that was pulled from his cabin in 1996 completely disheveled with his clothes rotting off and, you know, soot on his face. So, in the early years when Ted would come over, it was he was always a bit strange and I, you know, the my first memories of him I don't, when I really truly look at them, I wasn't scared. I wasn't, there was, there was no fear present when he was at the house or, um, you know, when he came over to help my dad and things like that. Mm -hmm. But definitely as the years went on, those visits became much more alarming. And did your parents try to keep him at a distance at some point? Yes, they did in, you know, my, so my mom and my father did get divorced in the eighties and my dad remarried. Um, and my stepmother was not, didn't have quite the relationship with Ted as my mom did. 
And so there was definitely a change in that dynamic. When Ted would come over, it just wasn't quite the same. He wasn't coming over for dinner at that point. He was, you know, there, I talk about in the book, there was a day where he actually worked on my dad's sawmill. Mm-hmm. And my, my stepmother, Wendy, was his boss. And it made for um, a pretty difficult day of, of labor for, for all of them. The dynamic definitely changed in our, you know, in our family over the years. Um, and, you know, Ted wasn't, Ted wasn't quite as friendly with my parents. And there were plenty of disagreements between my father and Ted, especially in the 90s, as, you know, as, as Ted's reign of terror continued. And of course, as, as his mental illness probably deepened. So we talk about disagreements with your father and Ted, but there was some strange things going on that at the time probably seemed very strange and maybe random, but then later knowing who Ted actually is, you have to have your suspicions that maybe Ted was involved or, or the, the, the sole uh, perpetrator of some of these items. So let's, let's talk about two strange events in particular would be, there was some kind of sabotage at your, your father's sawmill, which I, I believe that was covered in one of the, maybe the Netflix special. And then your, this is incredibly terrible, but your, your, the family dog, your family dog uh, was poisoned at some point. Yeah. So there were plenty of um, acts of sabotage in the Lincoln area that I uncovered while writing this book. And of course I can't say for sure that Ted was responsible for all of them, but there were a few definitely that um, he admitted to. And one of those, yes, was the sabotage of my father's sawmill. It was sanded, which just means that, you know, somebody had put sand into the gas tank. And um, we didn't know at the time who that was. My dad initially had, he did have some suspicion that it may be Ted and had confided in one of our neighbors, like, oh, I just, I don't, he said, I don't trust him. I don't know why. And the neighbor, Chris, you know, was like, oh, Ted couldn't do that. Think about it. Like, he's just an eccentric hermit. My dad finally kind of accepted that and moved on. I will be honest when, yes, when he was arrested, of course, we were like, oh, you know, that was most likely Ted, but I didn't know that it was absolutely 100% Ted Kaczynski Mm -hmm. until participating in the Netflix documentary and hearing the interview that's on that doc. And Ted is, is bragging about it and admitting to it and saying, you know, that he, I think he calls my dad an asshole and says something like I have this neighbor butch Gehring who's an asshole or something like that and uh you know my my goal was to put him out of business and so hearing that and hearing what you know what he did could finally you know provide some like concrete closure and you know um, my dad has passed away and I I really wish that he was able to hear that because it would have have really you know confirmed a lot of 
a lot of his thoughts through the years. I mean, obviously the arrest was a big wake up call for everybody and um, had solved some, some mysteries for sure. But that specifically wasn't uncovered until the documentary aired. So yeah, that was one. And then there was another pretty horrific event. I mean, when, um, when I was writing this book, I had interviewed other neighbors and was hearing all of these horrific stories of other pets in the area being poisoned and pets being stabbed and horrible deaths and such. Our dog had been, our dog Wiley had been poisoned and had a pretty slow death. But at the time, the veterinarian had confirmed that it was strychnine that the dog had ingested. And as horrible as that was, um, you know, and there, I definitely had um, some, I, I guess, concerns that it was Ted Kaczynski. You know, there was strychnine found at his home when um, the FBI searched the cabin. It wasn't again until I was writing this that I found a letter that Ted admits to killing a dog, a neighbor's dog, that was sneaking into his garden at night. I I think that was, I mean, it was a difficult moment for me for sure, because I know this sounds really odd, but knowing uh, a killer as a child is, I mean, to put it lightly, a, a very strange experience and a hard thing to reconcile as an adult because I I do have these softer memories of him. And I saw him through this different lens and I trusted him as a little kid. And finding these things out and knowing, seeing the concrete evidence of really what he was capable of, and really what danger we were in living so close to him um, was, was just a really hard part of this whole process. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. 
IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. 
Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, let's get back to Nick's interview with Jamie, the author of Madman in the Woods, talking about Unabomber Ted Kaczynski. Yeah, I can hear the the inner struggle that you have there, and it's something that I can't, you know, nobody can take away from you or or nobody can relieve you of that, but it's something I really wish that it's one of those situations where that's what separates you from Ted. That's what separates me and you and a whole bunch of other people from somebody like Ted, where you have enough compassion in your heart and empathy that for somebody that you can look back on somebody as terrible as this man is and as horrible his, as his deeds were and as evil as he was that you can still, you still look back and go, he wasn't always bad, or there was some good in him, or, or there was something that you saw that wasn't pure evil. And he, he would never feel that way for any of us. Right. And so it's, it's hard to really kind of wrap your head around that. But when we talk about the destruction to your father's sawmill and the a dog being poisoned, maybe he poisoned other dogs as well. You know, Ted was so, he, his makeup, especially the older he got to me, was just somebody that was so incredibly jealous, spiteful, and hell-bent on revenge. I think it rings true when we hear him say years later, oh, this man that I live next to, he was an asshole, and I and I happily uh, put sand in in the sawmill and 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 tried to take down his operation because that's who he is. He's hell bent on revenge, and he he personally feels, oh, I bested that man. I won in the in the end. I won, even though I didn't play fair, even though I played dirty. And oh, by the way, we were in some weird competition that this other guy was even unaware of. And I was jealous of him for reasons that he would never even know or understand. But, oh, in the end, it doesn't matter because I won. I bested him. That's really, to me, what a lot of his destruction and chaos and death that he caused was all about. And and so many people, and this, we talk about difficult to wrap your head around, 
so many people, you see them on the internet go, oh, if anybody would take the time to read his manifesto, you would realize how brilliant and how smart and forward thinking this guy was. And I read the manifesto and the whole time I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, he sent bombs to people and, and with total reckless regard for any human life, we are lucky that he will only killed the number that he killed. The number could have been so much higher just, could, just, yeah. just based off a circumstance that was out of Ted's control. And so you sit there and you read his manifesto and you go, this guy is a walking contradiction to everything that he put in these papers. There's no brilliance there. Nobody's arguing that he has 167 IQ, but I would argue what kind of real brilliance and beliefs did this guy have other than the core of it all at the core of it all. I see a, a, a weak man who has no self-respect and has shunned himself from his family by his own choice, but blames his family that he doesn't fit in with them. Just like he blamed your family that he didn't fit in with you. He's hell bent on jealousy and revenge and, and spitefulness to that, that led him down this horrible, dark, destructive path. Now, the other thing too, though, you, you, you mentioned that there were weird meetings in the woods with Ted or, or hearing strange noises at night? Yeah, there was um, multiple events when um, I was really small that I, I was about five when it first started happening. I was laying in my bed and my bedroom faced kind of the mountainside and behind our home, there were some old cars um, and my dad had an old, old smobile he was planning on fixing and his boat and various, um, pieces and parts for the sawmill and things like that. And that was very close to my bedroom window. And I would start hearing something outside of my window and it wasn't, it wasn't an animal. I knew that much. I would hear like rustling i would hear metal clanging against each other i would and i started to hear very light whistling i would always sleep with my bedroom window open because even as a little kid i really loved the the wind and the smell of the pines i started waking up to this these noises outside and i was terrified and i would run into my dad's bedroom and yelled, you know, there's a monster outside. And my dad, of course, would be like, oh, no, it's just your overactive imagination, climb into bed. And I was like, no, dad, there's really somebody out there. And it, I think he did appease me a few times and would like, walk over to my room and be like, no, nobody's here, you know, and come back in as you do with little kids. But, you know, as Ted writes in his journals, he was foraging for scraps and pieces to put in his bombs. And, and much of the reason he was untraceable for so long, because he wasn't buying supplies anywhere that could be traced for his bombs. He was finding the majority of the metal and, of course, wood that he was using around his home. Knowing that now as an adult and knowing that I was hearing really I was really hearing a monster outside my window was um I, I think it was just a real moment of clarity for me and I finally as an adult I I could 
kind of put that to rest and and two, like know that I was I was right and I knew something was amiss. I but you know I was just a kid, so that you know although a, a scary experience, um, you know was it was really kind of I suppose empowering for me as an adult to write about it and know that that I that I had the intuition. Um, to know that something was wrong. So yeah, that was that was one experience. And then there was another one as I was much older. It was actually just the year prior to Ted's arrest that I, I was taking a walk through our woods, which I did all the time. And, um, you know, I, I was rounding a corner, almost collided with Ted. And here we are both alone in the woods together. And he is much more at this point, like the man that you saw being uh, pulled out of his cabin in 1996. You know, he's describe him a little bit for us. Yeah. So he's completely disheveled. He's got, you know, holes in his clothing. He's got soot. Uh, He always had soot on his face, dirt Mm -hmm. under his fingernails. But at this point, his his eyes were really bulging. He um, just seemed like almost, you know, agitated and frantic. His just demeanor was completely different from kind of the shy, reserved, eccentric hermit that I initially had known as a little kid. Um, and so just his appearance was much more frightening. You know, there was gray in his beard, his hair was sticking up all over the place. And, you know, the, of course, at this point, I understood a bit more about the world around me than I did when I was four. And so being alone in the woods with him was frightening on its own. But also there was just something uh, about him that really scared me at that point. And you know, it's just one of those those moments where the hair on the back of your neck is sticking up, and you know you're scared for for a reason. Um, it's intuition, and so you know we both said hello as best as possible. Turned around, he went back his way. I went back to my house, and the entire time I was running back to the home as soon as I knew that he couldn't see me anymore or thought he couldn't see me and was looking over my shoulder to make sure he wasn't behind me. Um, so that was one of those other, you know, really frightening experiences as an adult looking back on that and thinking how differently that could have gone. I mean, he was, he was killing, he was maiming, he was, you know, he had been um, a domestic terrorist for for almost two decades at that point. You talk about being scared. You're meeting him in the woods. And now, forgive me for a little bit. Uh, I might use a little language that, that we don't want. But, uh, you know, one of his journals, one thing that struck me when researching Ted and his crimes and his life and his lifestyle a little bit was in one of his journals. And I don't know if this was made up for the media or if this is real and you may know, but it was referenced that he at one point was sitting in the woods with his rifle, considering shooting 
the neighbor's daughter. I think he even says something extremely vulgar, like I, I, I thought about killing the bitch or, or shooting the little bitch. Was he talking about you? And is that true? Do you know, do we know if that's true? So you're right about that. And, um, I do talk about that in Mad Men in the Woods. It was one of the more difficult things for me to write about. And the, the way it happened is that, yes, Ted was in the woods with his rifle and, um, in that 10 by 12 cabin on in Lincoln, Montana, he did have rifles. He mm-hmm. had a pistol that he had made himself. And as you, as you know, when he was arrested, he also had a bomb that was packaged and ready to be sent. So there were plenty of terrifying things within that cabin and within those woods. And on one particular day, Ted was out um, in our, again, our shared backyard with his rifle. And since our land surrounded his, my stepmother and my little sister, who was only two at the time, they were out doing some chores and kind of reseeding the ground. And my stepmother just felt something. She felt something ominous. She she felt a presence, and you know you're in the in the middle of the woods, and you think you're in Montana. It's maybe a mountain lion. There's a predator of some sort. So she grabbed her daughter, got her in the truck, and they left. Well, she didn't think about this um, again until after Ted's arrest, and in those journals, which. My, 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 especially my father was very involved in the investigation, but they were able to read some of those. And my stepmother remembers reading that Ted had a rifle pointed on her. And yes, he was kind of vacillating between my stepmother and my little sister, who's a toddler, really contemplating killing them. And yes, you're right. While he's looking through the scope and thinking about, you know, killing close range, he's in his journals later talking about if he killed the, you know, bitch one, then bitch two would be left on the mountainside. I mean, just the way that he talks about it is horrific. And for obvious reasons, that was really really difficult to to write about of course of course and and i mean it doesn't get any scarier than that now your father we have him playing a role in taking down ted we have fbi agent max knoll says that your father was the eyes and ears of a portion of their investigation can you tell us about your father's role and and maybe anything you witnessed or or learned about after the fact. Yes, this the Unibom case um was, you know, very sensitive for for many reasons, but because of Ted's isolation and because of the environment he lived in. He's surrounded by trees. He's surrounded by mountains and trees and and hardly anybody lives out there. 
he knew, he being Max Knoll, knew that he was going to need some help. And Mm -hmm. my father ended up being that person. And of course, the, the FBI had to first determine if they could trust my father and that didn't take that didn't take very long it just took a conversation my dad ended up yes being kind of the eyes and ears because any other person around the cabin would have raised suspicion during that time when max noel was planning the investigation and you know really trying to figure out how they were going to arrest this man. It was, you know, they were looking back on Ruby Ridge and Waco and they didn't want, they didn't want any casualties. They didn't want, you know, Ted to be killed and they didn't want, obviously, the FBI to be harmed. And so they had to be really strategic. And Mm -hmm. um, my father was, as you said, the eyes and ears, he would report back to Max, you know, if there was smoke coming out of the chimney or if, Um, there were footsteps coming out of the cabin, things like that in the beginning. Uh, and then, um, as the investigation continued, the FBI was having a really difficult time getting images, um, even aerial images. And so, um, you know, my dad actually went (laughs) and walked the grounds, walked around Ted's cabin with his handheld video camera and taped the terrain for the FBI in preparation of the arrest. So they knew exactly what it looked like. So that, that was definitely, as even my dad would admit, uh, a very scary part of the investigation because my dad knew at that point they had shared with him, you know, they, they, they slowly, um, kind of told him what they were suspecting Ted of. But initially it was, they were just looking into Ted Kaczynski for writing some threatening letters. And then it did come out that in fact, they thought he was the Unabomber. So my dad knew at that point when he was walking around Ted's cabin with this, and you think about in the nineties, what a handheld video camera looked like. It wasn't like your small little iPhone. And so He's walking around this serial killer's home in the middle of the woods where he, and he knows that he has rifles. He hunts. He doesn't know all of the contents of his cabin, but he was terrified and, but he knew that he had no other choice and um, he couldn't see one more person hurt. So he did it. Yeah. And Jamie, I, want to thank you so much for talking with us about your wonderful book, your fascinating book, Madman in the Woods, the uh, life next door to the Unabomber. I, there's really dozens of things that we could go into that you do go into in your book, and it's a fascinating read. So I want to congratulate you on that. One thing I want to leave a little bit of a cliffhanger for everybody <laughs> out there in listener land is um, I'm sure everybody will be dying to know what happened when you wrote to Ted in prison uh, after his arrest, but we won't give that answer here today. Instead, why don't we tell everybody where they can find this incredible book? Yeah. Well, thank you for the kind words on the book. I really do appreciate that. My book can be found 
basically anywhere you buy your books, any brick and mortar that you like to shop at, but also, of course, online, Amazon, um, Barnes and Noble, and then, of course, my website as well, jamiegaring.com. Wonderful. Thank you again for joining us and congratulations on the book. And I hope to come back and talk to us again sometime. Thank you so much. Old Ted Kaczynski, Madman in the Woods, fascinating stuff. Colonel, do we have any recommended reading for the beautiful listeners? Of course we do here, Captain. We're going to be recommending Madman in the Woods, Life Next Door to the Unabomber by our guest, Jamie. As a child in Lincoln, Montana, growing up, her family shared their land, their home, and their dinner table with a hermit with a penchant for murder. And that, of course, was Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Check out her book, her fantastically intriguing book, Madman in the Woods, Life Next Door to the Unabomber. You can find that great title and many more on our recommended page at truecrimegarage.com. Join us back here in the garage next week, and until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today.